Welcome to another episode of Axe of the Blood God, US Gamer's official RPG podcast. I'm your host, Kat Bailey. With me today, as always, is my lovely co-host, Nadia Oxford. Hello, hello. And uh, as usual, we talk about RPGs, big and small, Western and Eastern. It's our favorite genre. We love it so much. And they really keep you going on a rainy day uh, here in California, because like California is a wash in rain right now. <laughs> Apparently, uh, I heard. Uh, you guys had that big-ass uh, windstorm, too, as I recall. It only rains, it rains but once a year here in California, but when it rains, it really freaking <laughs> rains. Uh, over here, we got like uh, rain, but it's also like snowy, slushy disgustingness. Oh, gross. Yeah. I don't miss that at all uh, from living in the Midwest. Uh, I'm perfectly okay to be in six years straight of, of drought. Yeah. Um, don't have to deal with any snow over there. That's for sure. I also have a cat sniffing around at the microphone. Um, so Hamish so do is joining I, us it, today. <laughs> I guarantee Cam- he will start purring into the mic any second now. So, <laughs> And uh, Cammy is joining us too. All right. Well, today we are going to be talking a little bit about Final Fantasy VII Remake and Kingdom Hearts 3. Uh, uh, as, as in they're not coming anytime soon. Pretty much. Uh, we'll be talking about the cancellation of Scalebound, which kind of came out of nowhere, but and yet maybe didn't. Yeah. Uh, we will be talking, and we will also be talking about uh, the Final Fantasy VII oral history uh, that recently went up on Polygon. Uh, its writer, Matt Leone, will be joining us to be talking about a bit about the project and what he learned from about Final Fantasy VII. It's it's a pretty exhaustive <laughs> It is. It, it's, uh, read. A, it's a big one. Uh, if you're going to read it, which I definitely recommend, uh, get yourself some tea first. Oh, my God. Yeah, I I just finished wrapping it up, and like I was pretty stunned at the level of detail it went into because not only does it cover the run-up to the game, which I, I think is actually the most interesting part, um, mm-hmm. that and like the actual creation of stuff like uh, One Winged Angel. But Yes, that was really interesting. The... <sighs> The fact that they covered, like, the development of the PC games and, like, uh, there's a huge chunk of content about the Lost about Lost Odyssey, which kind of surprised me. I wasn't mm-hmm. expecting that, actually. Uh, yeah, like, as a kind of a definitive history of a very specific time in Square's um, history, I think it's very much worth a read. So Matt Leone is going to be on the show to talk about that. But I think Nadia... The fans are demanding it. We got to do our very <laughs> first Persona 4 Golden Report. Persona! Well, uh, Kanji's officially in my party now, and Woo-hoo! I've decided I'm going to keep him because he uses a folding chair as a weapon. <laughs> <laughs> I, what the hell is that? Not that I mind. He doesn't strike me as much of a WWE type because you know how no. Vince McMahon likes the big beefy guys, and Kanji's kind of the opposite of that. But, uh, I fed a cat. That was very important. Yes, feeding the cat is important. Uh, it just so happened I had a fish on me, which is good, um, because I, I've kind of taken to fishing, uh, too. Yes, yes. You, I think you needed specific fish. Is that what it is? Yeah, like some sort of... Um, it, it actually turns out I needed two specific fishes, fishies for uh, two different quests, and I happened to have both of them on me. So um, good stuff, me. I had totally forgotten about the fish thing. There's so much about this game that you kind of forget about. Well, there's so much to do. Gosh. Yeah, there's a ridiculous amount to do. And, like, you only have a certain amount of time to do it. Mm-hmm, exactly. It's very interesting in that regard. Um, I've mentioned before the uh, uh, 
girl who I buy my cat food from is like a huge Persona fan, and she says she's played through the game four times. <laughs> I was what? like, wow. Yeah. Wow, my God. Like, playing this game four times, I, I can't even fathom. Like, I mean, when I was in high school, I think I already mentioned it, I played Final Fantasy VII like 10 times, but I was in high school, so like mm-hmm. I had a lot of time on my hands. Like, I can't fathom having that much time on my hands anymore. Neither can I, but that I can't speak because I play Final Fantasy VI like I would start a new game every week, put it that way, and try to finish it by the end of the weekend. Yeah, I had Final Fantasy VII down to a science. Like, <laughs> I could finish that game and well, it would it would take me about 25 to 30 hours because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I knew exactly what I needed to be doing and like how I was supposed to be leveling up. I'd be out of I'd be out of Midgar in like two hours or something like that. That's pretty good. Uh, did your parents also say, what the hell is your problem? Why don't you go make some friends? <laughs> I had friends. I had friends, too. I was just very introverted. I had friends. I lugged my heavy-ass computer over to their house like every other weekend, and we played land, uh, wow. games over land. It was great. That's I was dedication. the only girl. Oh, that's so sweet. Didn't even think about it. But I was like, oh, yeah. No, I was definitely the only girl back then. Hmm, that was a thing. <laughs> um, no, um... Yeah, uh, but Persona 4 is quite the endeavor. Like, I beat Xenogears back in the day. It took me, like, 80 hours, and I certainly did not play that game again, even though I really I, I never it. played it once, so um, that was 80 hours saved, I suppose. Well, but you missed out. I mean, it's a really, what's the word, um, strange game <laughs> and flawed in a lot of respects, but I feel like it's kind of an experience that you need to have. Is that the one where Choo Choo gets crucified? Yes. Okay, yeah. Because oh, all, all I know from it is like, all I know about it is what I read from Parrish's uh, reports back in the day. <laughs> Choo Choo died for your sins, etc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, uh, throw it on the pile, Nadia. <laughs> that's a big one to throw on the pile, cat. I like that that's our catchphrase now. Throw, throw it on, on the pile, pile Nadia. But uh, as for uh, Persona, yeah, I'm. Uh, I actually uh, made friends with uh, Dojima after all. Oh, uh, see, yeah, he likes you now. He likes me now. He's he's just a little bit rough around the edges, and uh, I've kind of run into a wall with uh, Nanako because she asked me, "Why do people die?" And because I guess because of her mother, and my um, expression isn't really high enough to tell her, "Well, people just." die sometimes so yeah you have to build up your your abilities a lot and you know what you can do in that regard what's that there's a super duper ramen thing like there's a soup shop yeah i strongly recommend getting those soup thingies like whenever you can because they will like dramatically raise like i think three of those traits oh nice i've been reading books and that seems to be a slow way to do it oh yeah you have to read the books too okay like I would say, now that you're past midterms, like screw studying, just read books. Oh, okay, that's good to know. And build the models. Like you should also be building the models. Oh, okay, I had to get some. Um, someone on Twitter was saying how uh, they had to learn how to play the trumpet good enough to explain to Nanako why uh, their mother died. <laughs> 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 I can't talk to her about death until I learn how to play the trumpet. Damn it. But yeah, no. So yeah, yeah. I, I forgot about that. You have to raise your traits a lot mm-hmm, mm-hmm. in this game uh, to be able to have a lot of meaningful relationships. Uh, it, managing your time in that regard can be a little bit stressful. Yeah, but I think I'm I'm doing all right. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, the fact that you had the fish already like speaks to the fact that you're kind of exploring out a little bit and uh, kind of going around town and seeing all the things that you can do. 
Yeah, and also I just really love fishing in games and in real life too, although I don't get to do it very much. Mm. So you actually like to fish in real life? I find I that uh, the fish in real life, uh, the fish scare me. Do they scare you? I'm afraid of fish in real life because I, I just can't touch them. They're really slimy. And they have and, those dead eyes. Well, my parents used to take me up north. <laughs> my parents used to take me up north to the lake, um, which is a very Minnesotan thing to say, um, yeah. to go fishing. And I I would catch the little, you know, the little fish and its mouth would be like flopping and I would have to kind of reach into its mouth to pull the hook out. Mm-hmm. Could not deal. Could yeah. not do that. Could not put my finger anywhere near that mouth. That's understandable. Um, I On the opposite side, uh, speaking of, we went to the lake, quote unquote. Uh, our lake is Lake Ontario. I, I don't know which one yours is, but uh, I can't remember what. One of what. the 11,000 lakes in Minnesota. Oh, okay. I thought you meant you, you went up to one of the Great Lakes, but uh, I actually won a fishing contest and I won a boombox. <laughs> what? I won a, a boombox, yeah. Was this like in the 90s? It was totally in the 90s. Because boombox is totally a 90s thing. Oh, yes. I think my most successful fishing endeavor ever in a video game was in Twilight Princess. Oh, God. Like, I actually loved fishing in that, except for the first fishing uh, task they give you. You can't skip around. That was terrible. I don't remember. Uh, but... you, had to, you had to catch a, a fish for a cat, just like in uh, Persona. Mm. And um, it just took me forever to hook that stupid fish. What is it about? about what about... What is it about catch? Oh my god! I couldn't. I found the. I found the fish, but I got. I couldn't find the cat. I couldn't figure out how to get to the cat. <laughs> when I was playing the HD remake last year, mm-hmm. I was like, "How do f do I get to that damn cat?" Took me forever. That's funny. finally figured it out. I, and by forever, I mean like twenty minutes, but still, still too long. Felt like forever in game terms. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't you have to do that in another game as well? Oh, Final Fantasy fifteen. Don't you have to get a fish for a cat in that game too? Yes, it is optional, but it is very important. Um, I did it twice. No, no, sorry. It was just once. One time I bought the cat food, and the other time I uh, I got the fish. I say as I have a cat perched precariously on my arm. Cats are very needy <laughs> creatures. They are. They keep conning us into fishing for them in video games. And here I am in real life. I once gave my cat smoked salmon. I wouldn't touch it. <laughs> so do you have a part-time job? I do. Um, I've been meaning to upgrade because for now I just make envelopes. Mm. But uh, my I was given a a prompt that my knowledge is high enough to uh, to do a tutoring job or something of the sort. Definitely be a tutor. Okay. That's how you meet somebody. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you definitely want to be a tutor. Um, like, that's the kind of stuff that you do so that you can start meeting new people and make new social connections. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, that's the hardest thing. It's not managing your time to build up your social connections. It's kind of knowing when somebody is available and then being able to plot out your time accordingly right and it's so easy just to blow completely past uh, a social link that you might have otherwise gotten yeah and uh, the social links um, are they only really good for making better personas or is there more to them um well if you build up the social links with your party members they will uh, dramatically improve their personas and i think that there are rewards at the end of the game for certain characters um just build up the just build up the uh just build up your social links with them that's all make I'll the say. damn friends nadia 
Yeah, pretty much. Just keep <laughs> just keep making friends. It's like the core of the game, friendship. Yeah, very Japanese in that respect. And not only that, but like the stories are great, right? Oh yeah, so far I'm enjoying them all. Even though they're like really passive. Mhm. I found myself really looking forward to each one because they tended to be really kind of moving. Yeah. Yeah, definitely I, I, enjoying them. I find that interesting. Like what do you think it is about Persona 4's cutscenes that are so engaging versus something else? Uh, I guess there's just um, kind of a more realistic side to them. Uh, it's like you could kind of picture being friends with with most of these people in real life. Mm. Uh, whereas most cutscenes and most RPGs tend to be more of the fantastical, hey, I'm an orphan, let's avenge my father sort of thing. Whereas oh. a, in like yeah. Persona 4, it's it's literally like, okay, in real life, there is every chance that some little kid could ask me, why did my mother have to die? <laughs> you know what I mean? Sure. So you kind of self-insert into the main character mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you kind of imagine yourself being friends with people like Kanji and yeah. getting to know them <laughs> slowly but surely, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, people tend to approach me a lot in real life. Like, even if I don't know them, it's, it's kind of odd. Really? Yeah. Huh. Yeah. I- I'm one you of those just, people. You seem like a very friendly and approachable person. I always think it's because I'm small and very non-threatening. Maybe that's why. <laughs> Even though I can bite kneecaps quite hard. Oh my god. Uh, <laughs> I would not want to deal with your kneecap biting ability. So I got have my you moved shots. into the next dungeon? Not yet. I have a feeling I'm approaching it though because there's there's hints coming that someone else is uh, in trouble or coming into trouble. So, but you've been able to go into the dungeon. You've used Kanji in battle though. Yeah, I actually went back into the bathhouse. I was trying to look for a certain item. Mm. Um, I I think it was coal, but I never did find it. Oh, okay. Yeah, that can be a little tricky at times. Yeah, like uh, some old, some woman asked me for like an old key, and I got like fifty of those, oh, and I didn't right. get one stupid piece of coal. <laughs> All right, so we are continuing right on through our Persona Four Golden reports, um, and we're gonna keep doing these every episode basically until mm-hmm. Nadia finishes up Persona 4 Golden so, so yeah this in. week we had to record a little bit earlier so she won't, won't have had enough as much time to play as normal but when she gets back um well when we return next week um we sh- she would have had almost two full weeks though yeah. you're gonna be in the middle of Dragon Quest 8 as well so that's gonna be taking up some of your time I'm sure I'll find a way to balance it all out I am learning time management from Persona 4 after all Yes. <laughs> All right, Nadia, let's talk a little bit about the news. And I think the top headline uh, this week, Scalebound, kind of out of nowhere, but not really officially canceled. Um, yeah. You wrote an op-ed on it. Uh, what was what were kind of your thoughts, Nadia? Uh, well, it kind of tied back into something you wrote a little bit a while ago uh, about how uh, Platinum is very concerned with its own IPs, and it wants to make games with its own IPs, obviously. Uh, it takes a lot of commission work to to keep itself alive, but Scalebound is supposed to be one of its games, you know what I mean? And it's apparently dead, and that's very worrying and kind of disappointing, too. Yeah, um, really unfortunate. And I was like, even though the protagonist looked kind of, he was kind of a smartass and maybe not very likable, at least from the, the trailer, um... I was really looking forward to that one. 
I was too, um, not the least because it was kind of an MMO, or it was kind of an RPG, mm. like a co-op RPG, I guess. Um, there were numbers flying around, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> there certainly were numbers. Um, I will... Go ahead. I was going to say, uh, I think it was, um, was it someone I was watching today, I think it was either Beta64 or Unseen64, uh, one of those uh, news sites, news sources, had a little bit more insight into the cancellation and how ultimately a lot of it probably was a conflict between Platinum and Microsoft, and I could definitely see that being the case. Uh, obviously, I don't know for sure. It's just a you know going by intuition. Um, how much did Microsoft want that Platinum didn't want? I'd love to know more, but we're not going to know more for a while, I don't think. Yeah, it's all pure speculation, to be perfectly yeah. honest. Yeah. Uh, I will say that... What I saw at E3 did not impress me. Mm-hmm. You and a lot of people, apparently. I wrote an article about it. In yes, fact. I linked back um, to it. I didn't like the protagonist. I, I didn't like the writing. Um, I thought the combat was... Eh. I, I thought the presentation was a decided step down from what mm-hmm. Platinum usually has to offer. Mm-hmm. And maybe... like I was obviously still willing to give it a chance. Um, and I think maybe some of it was that these kinds of games can kind of... Um, show poorly at a mm-hmm. big event. Uh, see Final Fantasy fifteen, exactly. Which, for all of its flaws, turned out to be a very interesting game. Um, and I think a lot of people ended up being on board with its battle system. It showed horribly at E three. It did. Uh, they tried to do some sort of multiplayer battle or something, didn't they? Uh, in uh, Scalebound, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just... it. Was a really long, boring battle with a dragon. Exactly. And you should never have a boring battle with a dragon. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, you should always have a very exciting battle with a dragon. Yeah. Because dragons um, are exciting creatures. That's part of the reason I was looking forward to Scalebound, because I like the idea of adventuring with a big-ass dragon. Even if I didn't like the protagonist, I like, I'm sure I would like the dragon without a problem. It strikes me that this kind of game is not really in their wheelhouse. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They are known for their action games. And exactly. I mean, they've made other kinds of games before. Um, I think The Wonderful 101 is a good example of that. Uh, when mm-hmm. they first started, actually, they were making stuff like Infinite Space. Yeah. But it just seems like uh, from everything we've been able to gather, this game was not going well. Yeah, unfortunately. Um, and they decided to cut their losses, which unfortunately was four years in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they had quite a bit going there. And... Um... It was pointed out they stopped updating their Twitter account in September, which is around the time the game was canceled. Ah, uh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, I, I think, so my opinion of how this will affect Platinum is it can't be good because yeah. any time you're pouring that amount of money into a large-scale, basically AAA game, um, you're not uh, you're going to take a big hit. And mm-hmm. Platinum is a mid-sized indie. Mm-hmm. that was already kind of trying to I mean they were I w- I'm not going to go into like their financial details or whatever but I do know that they got into licensed game development and it's pretty apparent that they were doing it because they needed to pay the bills pretty much uh, but that's not what they wanted to do they did not mm-hmm. see it as something that they could do for the long-term health of the company, they said pretty explicitly to me last year when I interviewed them, or Atsushi Inaba, he said, we need to make our own IPs 
to be able to be successful. And Scalebound was going to be one of their own IPs. Yes, although I think I heard that Microsoft owns it now. It might be that. Uh, it was always a little unclear. So, like, I'm pretty sure they don't own Bayonetta. No, Sega owns that, right? Sega owns Bayonetta. But it sounded like Scalebound was going to be their own. Yeah, Scalebound, I know, at least started out as their own because they had uh, an idea. Of, they had the uh, general idea for Scalebound even before they finished Bayonetta. But I don't know if they sold it to Microsoft or they had to. Well, in any case, uh, I, I think it's just bad all around that if mm. this was going to be their first true R- R- IP and they couldn't make it work, that's really legitimately disappointing because more than ever, um, games were game developers rely on recognizable characters and ideas and and worlds to be able to sell their games in a saturated market. Exactly. And it, they, they were pretty far along with that game. So it's very disappointing for just from every angle. Indeed. So, I mean, hopefully Platinum picks it up uh, and hopefully somebody takes Scalebound and runs with it. <laughs> there was talk of like... There was talk of like it going to the Nintendo Switch. I somehow doubt that will happen. Um, mm-hmm. Because, I mean, Platinum was having a really hard time with it. So, Yeah, and by uh, all accounts, apparently Microsoft has scrubbed Scalebound from its like YouTube channel, etc. Jeez. Like the, all the videos plug. are gone. R.I.P. Yep. <laughs> R.I.P. in peace. Rip in peace. Speaking of games that uh, are coming along slowly... Uh-huh. Uh, Kingdom Hearts three and Final Fantasy seven remake. Yep. Did I uh... did I make a bet in the first episode of the new year that there wouldn't be no Kingdom Hearts three release? Did I do you that? S- you said something to that effect, and but I don't think anyone was taking that bet because I think everyone knew you were right. Like I, I feel like I feel sure that this was one of my big predictions, and maybe I don't remember if it was on the show or if I was making it to somebody else. But I was like, Kingdom Hearts three isn't coming out this year. And it sounds like that's the case. Um, Tetsuya Nomura was talking to Famitsu. Um, and he said that the games uh, aren't exactly around the corner. He said, while I can't make a sweeping <laughs> statement because the development process is different from what we've done so far, there are still worlds untouched. Production is progressing on unannounced worlds in a state that we cannot show them off. In terms of the state of development, there's still some ways to go talking about Kingdom Hearts 3. And he said the same thing about Final Fantasy VII Remake. We're steadily progressing on production while we are making them. I apologize that the wait will be a bit longer for Kingdom Hearts III and Final Fantasy VII Remake. I'm very sorry, but to that degree, to that degree, I will make a game that will meet your expectations. Last year, I didn't put out much information on either title, but this year, I want to show our progress in an event somewhere. The release of the titles themselves have still have a way to go, but there are many titles releasing this year. If you can wait for any surprises. <laughs> isn't Final Fantasy VII Remake, isn't that, like, episodic? Yes, so it is. we're still waiting on episode one, and God we knows when we'll, when we'll see the other ones. Uh, it's actually funny, because going back to that oral history of Final Fantasy VII, uh, I did not know, and this is fascinating, Final Fantasy VII was made in, like, a year. Yeah, no, isn't that crazy? That is nuts. Yeah, they they did it because they basically built up their staff mm-hmm. and outsourced it, mm-hmm. like, to like some so they had essentially a staff of like 350 people which isn't as big as some of the stuff like assassin's creed but no but for the time it was huge for the time it was really big 
And they're just basically like, we are going to have the best technology and the biggest staff, and we are going to crank this sucker out like in a year. And they did. They did. Yeah. And the other thing that jumped out at me about the oral history, and we'll be talking about this a bit more with Matt Leone. I, I wonder, like Nomura like spoke, talked obliquely a little bit about how detail-oriented he is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and some of the people who had worked with him were like, oh yeah, he obsesses with details like the character's eyes. Yeah, he mentioned something about like eyelid thickness and everything. So we kind of know where all that time is going to. <laughs> I just wonder if like he's obsessing so much over these little details that the games themselves just kind of languish, you know? Yeah. There was, um, it was rather infamously, Ken Levine was also like this um, Mm -hmm. with the the Bioshock Infinite in particular where like, but it was a little bit different where he was like taking tons of work that was already completed and saying, no, this is garbage, throw it out, start over, um, reportedly. And that is... um, I feel like these really strong creative people have very definitive ideas of what they want. Yeah. And when it's not coming out that way, they're just inclined to be like, throw it all out the window. So I I found that pretty illuminating, actually. I don't think Kingdom Hearts 3 is ever freaking coming out. (laughs) I think Final Fantasy VII Remake will come out before that game. Oh, definitely. I, I definitely am counting on that. But Kingdom Hearts 3, who the hell knows at this point? What a drag that Final Fantasy VII Remake has seems to have a pretty bad chance of actually making it out uh, in time for, I don't know, like in time for the anniversary, the 20th anniversary of Final Fantasy VII in Japan mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. in America as well. Because yeah. it came out here in August of 97. Wow. Yeah. So Goodness. that's been 20 years and it looks like Final Fantasy VII Remake isn't going to hit it. Oh, goodness, goodness. Maybe 2018. <laughs> Maybe. We'll see. Maybe give it to Tabata. Yeah, he's the uh, savior, isn't he? Yeah, he's the guy who gets things done. Yeah. I think Square Enix needs more of him. I, mean, I feel like almost more so than any media. Maybe even more so than movies. Like, just the act of making a video game is, like, it's management. Like, it's, mm-hmm. a, it's an assembly line. It's production. And... Like, you let that stuff go off the wheels and the pro- the project can really just go horribly. And I think we've seen that time and again with Square Enix. And you would hope that they would have learned the- their lesson with Final Fantasy fifteen, But, I mean, yeah, I they just cannot get Kingdom Hearts 3 in particular out the door. <laughs> and I don't have a ton of faith in Final Fantasy VII Remake. No, I'm I'm very wary at this point. Um, I'm hoping for the best, of course. I I want Final Fantasy like Kingdom Hearts three. I don't care, but uh, Final Fantasy seven remake. Man, when they announced that at like at E three, I I still watch that trailer once in a while. <sighs> I'm pretty pumped for it, and I'm really looking forward to playing it. Mm-hmm. But who knows? Maybe we could still be surprised. Maybe Nomura is just setting our expectations low, so that at E three, when they give us a release date, we can all be like, "What? <laughs> it's out now! Go to your store." Uh, like Polo Full Sega. Yeah. <laughs> that worked out so well for Sega. I'm sure it'll work out for them too. Mm, well, they're not exactly releasing a console. They'd be releasing a video yeah. game. That'd be a little bit different. But well, I guess we'll see, won't we? Mm-hmm. All right. Speaking of Final Fantasy VII, um, next we're going to have Matt Leone on the show. And he is going to be talking about his huge three years in the making oral history of Final Fantasy VII. So stay tuned. Thank you. 
All right, now with us is Matt Leone, an old colleague of ours from 1UP mm-hmm. back in the day. These days, he's a features editor over at Polygon, possibly the features editor, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yes, there are not two people with my job. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you just completed a just a mega project, an insanely huge mammoth oral history of Final Fantasy VII. I spent like the better part of a couple of hours reading through the entirety of this thing, watching the videos. Uh, it is a really remarkable accomplishment. And it sounds like you've been working on this thing for like three years. Is that true? Uh, sort of. So it's more like two years. Um, but it's it's also it's not like I've been actually like actively working on it for two years. It's more like I did the first interview two years ago, and then mm-hmm. you know you take a few months off from time to time just because you're waiting for certain things to come together, or you're busy with other things or whatever else. So it's it's fun to say like it was two years <laughs> in development, but it's not really like I spent that whole time working on it. You're kind of known for your um, your big oral histories. You also did the Street Fighter II oral history, which everybody really enjoyed. Um, what made you pick Final Fantasy VII? Yeah, I don't know. Somebody else asked me that the other day, and I was like, I can't really remember. Um, <laughs> it, it was a long time weird. ago. Yeah, it's it's weird too because I like I'm not like a, a massive Final Fantasy fan. Like I, I I've played it, but I haven't played it like. Hmm. 12 times or anything like most people um i just find kind of the development stories interesting so that's kind of what i got started with um but yeah i think it was just i saw some opportunities like i you know with any story like this you you need to get a certain number of people to kind of make it fair and to show both sides of different topics and kind of keep it interesting um and you never know if you're gonna be able to do that when you start because there's there's so many people you have to reach out to and you can't like know simultaneously if you're gonna be able to get all of them so i think kind of what kicked it off in my head was like i saw the opportunity to get four or five different people and i was like well if i can get them then that's a pretty good head start and there's a good chance i can get a lot of other people so let's see how it goes um but yeah i mean it's kind of just like you're you're guessing for the first little while until you kind of get enough people in and then then once you know it's kind of decent then you can kind of uh double down and spend more time getting like all the, the small details in there well, you actually uh, chose really well for a topic because Final Fantasy VII, as your uh, future reminds us, it wasn't just a matter of the series changing over. There was a lot there that highlights how the industry changed from, uh, you know, pixel-based uh, cartridge games to, you know, full-out cinematic 3D games. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely part of the, the intent was to show not just, like, the game itself, but, like, what was happening in the industry, like, the context before it, uh, mm-hmm. what led up to it, and then, and then what it, it led to after the fact. Um, and yeah, the, the timing was weird too, just because like when it, it seems really convenient right now, cause it's, it's like, you know, the anniversary of the Japanese releases in like two weeks or I don't know when this runs, but something like that. And then, uh, you know, the remake is coming out, but like I had none of that in my head when I started this, it was a total <laughs> luck. Um, like the remake had been announced. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the anniversary, like, I guess I vaguely knew it was coming up, but I wasn't really like intending for it to take. Uh, two years and like land on the anniversary so i mean once we got close we kind of like pushed it a little bit in that direction but yeah it was kind of a lucky time there how many times did you have to go to japan to be able to interview all these people (laughs) um i was in japan twice working on this story but it wasn't like i went just for this like the first time i was over there i was doing a bunch of different things and that's kind of when i first started the first interviews i did this was like uh, i think december 2014 i was doing a bunch of other stuff uh 
And then while I was there, I was like, well, why don't I see what I can get and kind of uh, get my toes in the water? Um, and so that's how it started. But then, um, yeah, I don't think I, I did. I didn't do the other trip that I went out there for was also like this was half of it. And then I was also doing some other stuff at the time. I think I was doing the, something with Mikami and some other stories. So like it, usually when I'll do trips that are more you know expensive like that, we'll try to loop in multiple things. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> get a bang for your buck. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it kind of is true. If you don't mind me asking, who was the hardest person to get? Yeah, it's weird because like hard can be different things. Like there's certain people who I had to convince or like talk mm-hmm. somebody else into convincing them on my behalf. So that's like I'm putting in more effort. But then there's other people who you just had to wait like a really long time. Uh, the best answer there is probably Nomura just because like mm. he will be very friendly <laughs> and upfront if you catch him at the right time. Right. But, but he's not always available for that kind of stuff. So that took a while. Um, but yeah, that was, and he was, I think that way, reason that one stood out too is because like I had most of the other like big names by the time we got to him. Um, so having that, uh, kind of fall into place, it was like, okay, now, most of the people that people have heard of are in there. And, I, and personally, I think some of the the kind of uh, below-the-line people or, or the people who are not as, as high-profile um, were more interesting to me in many different ways. But I think for a lot of people, I, I knew that they would want to have most of those big names in there. So that was kind of uh, weight off my shoulders. Yeah, actually reading through the article, I noticed that some of the people I hadn't really, who I don't really have committed to memory had the most interesting things to say. Yeah, I mean that, that was a big. That's a big part of like why I wanted to do this structure and the same thing with Street Fighter Two is that like I think whenever you get um, history articles about games, it's usually based on like one interview or two interviews, mm-hmm. and that's never like like people always treat that as like this is objective fact, and most of the time people don't always see these things the exact same way. So even with this story, like I, I'll, I'll see people like picking out certain quotes and they'll be like, well, this is fact now. And it's like, well, no, if you look at the other quotes above and below that, you'll see that people don't exactly remember it the same way or don't exactly agree on it. And I think uh, I, I've kind of like, the more I've done stories like this, I've become more distrustful of like a lot of the stuff you see um, that are just like single source interviews about, mm-hmm. especially about the old days. But I mean, mm-hmm. yeah true about these days too but um and yeah so i I, it kind of makes me paranoid like i don't trust things but it's also i I think it makes it more interesting when you can kind of get multiple voices in there yeah kat and i were talking about uh the how sakaguchi was saying oh the split up with nintendo was fine but all all his like underlings were saying no it wasn't we were pretty much banned (laughs) yeah well but but even that no it's like it was split because like some people think it's fine and, and and some people are probably just saying that because that's what they've heard from other people Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some people thought it wasn't, and it was kind of like a mix. And like, what I thought was interesting there is that like everyone had a slightly different take on it. Like even like the number of years that the split was over, like some people were saying yes. it was shorter and some people were saying it was longer. And I, I think a lot of this is just like the kind, the way people talk and you don't really, uh, catch that stuff normally in an interview. Some people just uh, see that and they, they assume that that is like the, the factual thing. Um, but it's just, you know, it's, it's kind of, it's rooted in the, the fact it's, it's the the feeling of it is right, but it's not right. always the details aren't always there. There were, there was even a bit where Sakaguchi was like, he said that. Katase <laughs> said that. Did he? Did he? Right, yeah. Was he making that stuff up? Like, what is he talking about? Like, people forget, right? Like, yeah, totally yeah, slips their memory. It, it, like, if I think back twenty years ago, um, 
I, I would get a ton of stuff wrong. Like I, yeah. <laughs> I, I went back and like I was so back uh, over the holidays, I was at my parents' house and I was like looking at these old fanzines I had worked on that were probably about 20 years ago now. And like, not only could I not remember like 90% of what I had put in there, but it was just like embarrassing and I didn't agree with any of it. And it's just yeah. like, it's terrible. So it, it's like, how do you, uh, it, how do you kind of like stand up for the decisions you made that long ago? I, I don't think you really, it's possible in many cases. I, you know, we were talking about Nomura earlier. I, I found that aspect of the interview really interesting because as you said, Nomura doesn't, often gives such detailed interviews. So it was really interesting to hear him talk about kind of where he was in the company at that time. And mm. especially like how he changed over time, because I feel like Nomura is like one of the most kind of enigmatic figures in Square Enix. Like people attribute so much to him and so many motivations to him. And he has this reputation and everybody seems to have a Nomura story. So it was really <laughs> interesting to hear like kind of everything kind of coming in, out of his own mouth. And the, the impression that I got of him was that he's extremely detail oriented uh, and that perhaps to his detriment. Um, and obviously this is just from his, uh, from the interview, but people were talking about how he was obsessing over things like, the look of the eyes with the characters. Uh, what was kind of your impression? I, I'm wondering. See, I, I relate to that. Like, I mm-hmm. if I see like something, some little detail that I will spend way too long trying to fix it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely true. Like, it, it, you hear like all the gossip, and and you never know whether that's real when people are talking. Like, the, you know, a lot of people kind of off the record, they're always like, oh yeah, he's a diva or something. And I, would, I don't, when I'm saying that, I don't mean people I've interviewed for this story. I just mean like people I, I've worked with in the past or people that I, I know in general. Um, he has that reputation of kind of um, being this like larger than life figure. But I think, uh, yeah, in my experience, like when I met him, super friendly, like no issues whatsoever, like willing to talk about everything. I think uh, we did the interview with Nomura, uh, Katase was there as well. So I think that helped loosen it up, loosen him up a bit. Um, but yeah, it um, like I, I didn't see any of that uh, in the you know couple hours that I spent with him. But it's it's hard to say how how true and and how not that is. And and you know it's not really on me to judge. It was it was kind of my goal to just to show what other people said to a certain degree. Although not many people wanted to say anything uh, too critical. But um, <laughs> and then just kind of get get his perspective on it. But yeah, I mean I think I think it, it, it's always hard to say. Like people, a lot of people assume like because he's so detail oriented, that's why all the games are always getting delayed, and that's why all these other things are happening. Like, there's so many people involved in each of these games. It's really hard for me to believe that that fact alone is why like all these huge decisions are happening. Um, but I don't really know. I mean, it's hard to say because there's a, I don't know. Whenever you have a game that has hundreds of people working on it, it's it's never a simple answer. It's never just like oh this person is this way and therefore this game got canceled or something kind of like a scale bound recently. Like mm-hmm. everyone's like assuming like, Oh, it's this person's fault or it's this person's fault. But like no one really knows. They're just kind of guessing. And, and I, I have to believe it's more than one person doing one thing. Yeah. Uh, talking the, the other thing that I found pretty interesting about your oral history, I mean, aside from all of it <laughs> uh, was <laughs> especially the, the first part, like the, the moments leading up to Nintendo, Nintendo's breakup with Square, or sorry, Square's yeah. breakup with Nintendo. And I feel like 
there's so much um, kind of like there are lots of rumors going around, like lots of false reports. Like one thing that you specifically highlighted, which I like maybe not a lot of people know, but like it's a known fact, but not a lot of people know is like the Final Fantasy VI interactive CG game wasn't actually an N64 demo. It was um, made for the the SGI uh, conference and things like that. And all of that gets mixed up together and people are like going, oh, well, Miyamoto wouldn't allow consoles to, or wouldn't, uh, wouldn't do anything but cartridges. Or, and other people are like, no, it was Yamauchi. And then people are going, well, Square was looking at the N64. And now I'm like looking at it and going, well, Square was looking at the N64 um, specs and we're going, this just wasn't up to snuff. Uh, yeah. I, I yeah, found that I, I, so interesting. I think that's a similar thing that I was talking about. Like, even that, I don't think is, is such a simple story. Like, so that yeah. that part of the story, like, it's probably the longest part of the story that I left mm-hmm. in there. But I still feel like we don't have all of it. I, I still feel like there's more there that people uh, weren't super open to talking about. Um, just as far as the politics and kind of like, I, I, I don't know how much of that decision was based strictly on hardware and how much of it was based on politics. Um, but I, I'm pretty sure there was at least you know, some of each of those in that decision. Um, and it, yeah, it, it's never like, I don't know, it, it, it's, it always, it, when you're writing it, you always want the simple answer, but it's never really that simple. Um, and that's why it's hard to kind of uh, condense it, I guess. Uh, how familiar, I suppose you're pretty familiar with that era. Like, what did, what were you kind of learning as you were uh, doing these interviews? Uh, about the era, um, yeah. I mean, I guess the big transition would just be, was it me like moving to 3D? Like, I, you could you could argue that the story is about Final Fantasy VII. You could argue it's about games moving into 3D or, or Sakaguchi or whatever else. But, but yeah, I mean, I think the the transition to 3D graphics is a huge thing. I think a lot of the people who worked on the game um, hadn't really worked on games before. They had worked on commercials or or TV or whatever else. Um, and I think that's for me. That's what's really exciting about. Uh, uh, FF7, like I, I know a lot of people think you know FF6 is the best Final Fantasy or, or whatever else, and you know I'm not going to argue that. I'm I'm not uh, hardcore enough to really um, be able to make a case one way or the other. Um, but for me, FF7 was the most exciting just because it felt mm-hmm. so different. Um, I mean, I, 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 I lar- and you know that's mostly a graphics thing, but I think that that whole era, that transition to like early 3D was. was one of the, for me, I mean, and granted, this is when I was probably a, a teenager. So um, it, it's seeing that uh, big step forward, which I don't think we've really seen since. Like people say that VR is like the equivalent of that. I don't really think it is as much mm. as I like VR. No. I, I, I just don't feel like I, I will see a transition as big as that one was in such a short time. Because like, it, it's weird to think back, but like at the same time that games like like Sonic the Hedgehog were coming out just like a couple of years later we saw like the first big 3D games and it's it's just kind of like this this weird era where like all of a sudden everything was moving so fast um and so yeah I, I don't I don't think we will see that kind of uh progress uh, anytime soon kind of on that scale um so that's what stands out to me is just like kind of thinking how how much things improved at that time I, I was going to ask about your own relation uh, you mentioned that your own relationship with Final Fantasy isn't that hardcore? Um, did that make the doing the research and preparing for all these interviews and, and such, and just being able to accomplish the project like super hard, or, or were you able to find that it was kind of sm- smooth sea- smooth sailing? Sorry. 
Not really, because mo- most of the stories I write, I don't really focus too much on like specific details of like the story or the lore or the mechanics or that kind of thing. Um, and you know, I, I know the basic stuff about Final Fantasy. It's not like I'm uh, completely oblivious to it. Um, I, I just, I, I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not somebody who I would like fact check every detail on like uh, a retelling of the, the plot or something like that. But I, I mean, I, I know what happened and I know the basics. Um, but yeah, we have a couple other people on 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 our team who like Allegra and Ashley, um, and they both helped uh, fact check certain things when I like wasn't 100 percent sure. But yeah, I mean, most of the story is about the people and kind of what happened behind the scenes, and you know, it, it touches on what's in the game, but it's not really like focused on all the details um for the most part so it, it works out all right were you finding that you're having to navigate around a lot of politics uh when you were doing this because you mentioned kind of the politics of square's breakup with nintendo and ultimately reunion uh, nomura has a quote at one point he said i shouldn't be saying this but uh, it was like the romance of the three kingdoms you know where the king dies <laughs> and then yeah. a civil war erupts and everyone starts fighting each other yeah, I was so happy. I mean, just just from like a storytelling perspective, I was so happy to get that quote because everyone had called Sakaguchi the king at the beginning, and I was yeah. just like, that that was not planned. That was just like I I, I saw these quotes, and I was like, okay, well, this is like the perfect uh, conclusion. Um, but yeah, like, I, uh, so the, I guess the question is like politics as far as like getting interview access. Uh, uh not not just politics in terms of interview access, but people being more circumspect with their answers um, versus like oh, just being like, yeah. oh, here is everything. Like allow me to tell you how it all went down. Yeah. I mean, I think you run into that in almost every interview you do. Um, but uh, it depends. I mean, certain people uh, have more to lose and certain people are just more cautious in general. Like I know a lot of people um, talk about how, how, you know, Japanese developers are generally a little more, um, conservative with their answers than than western developers and i find that sometimes is true and sometimes not um uh it it just kind of depends and i I mean yeah i think in general uh that's why or that's one of the main reasons why i wanted to find so many people because if you know half the people you talk to don't give you very many good quotes then you just use one or two quotes from each of them and then you just focus on the other people so eventually you'll get enough of what you need if you just keep tracking down more and more people mm-hmm. um, unless you run out of people which sometimes happens <laughs> but um so in this case yeah we did like 35 interviews and um there were some that were like the entire interview was worth including so we included a, a big chunk of it um but most of them we just included like the relevant bits and pieces that kind of fit in and and were exciting um so yeah i mean some I think it just depends on the person. Like if you if you still have a lot to lose or you're still very kind of invested in the industry, you may be more um, careful. Um, but there's some people that like uh, there's a guy named Hiroshi Kawai in the story. Uh, he was probably the most open, and I think that was, there was multiple reasons for that. One is he, he speaks great English uh, because he grew up in the U.S. Um, before getting over to work on the game, um, so that helped. Just because I think he was more familiar with Western press and that kind of stuff. Um, but also, yeah, he, he doesn't work in the game industry anymore. He, he runs his own company and he does like, like architecture, um, some kind of architecture software. Um, so it's, it's, it's much easier for him to kind of, uh, 
just be open about what he felt and you know that kind of stuff. So yeah, it just depends on the person. I found it interesting that you decided to go actually quite a bit beyond Final Fantasy VII and actually do a really mm-hmm. uh, substantial bit about the Lost Odyssey um, and also uh, the PC games and also Square's relationship uh, with EA. Uh, why did what what prompted you to kind of expand the focus of the story uh, to such a degree? Yeah, so it's, it's basically uh, the idea is to look at what happened before, during, and after. And so, like, I didn't get as deep into, like, all the things that led up to it, but, but those are all things that were, like, a direct cause of Final Fantasy VII's success. So, like, the PC version of the game came along because the game was successful, and they, they knew they could sell more. Uh, Square EA came along because Final Fantasy VII was successful, and EA wanted to be part of that franchise. Um uh, Lost Odyssey came along just because it was kind of like following the people. Like I didn't originally plan to include this stuff about Lost Odyssey, um, but as I started like following the story and like seeing where the people were going and how they kind of all clustered together, like that game had a bunch of people who had worked at Square coming together, and everyone just knows about Sakaguchi, but there are actually a lot of other people who are in the story who kind of like continued through. So I thought it was a nice kind of way to show it. I should point out, by the way, that um, when we had this story in editing. I think two or actually maybe three people told me to cut the Lost Odyssey section because it seemed hmm. like it was getting a little off topic. Uh, I refused because I'm stubborn. Um, I did <laughs> cut it down. It is shorter than it used to be. Um, but partly it's just because I thought the Lost Odyssey stuff was really interesting and partly because I thought it kind of showed the, the trajectory of, of Sakaguchi because he's kind of like the main through line for the whole story. Were you able to get any insight into how Final Fantasy VII Remake was going? Because... Um, mm-hmm. Uh, I would say Nomura and Katase seemed a little oblique on that front. Yeah, I mean, it, it, this wasn't like a story designed to reveal much about that. Mm. Um, the the interview we did with with so we did two interviews with Nomura and and one with Nomura and Katase, um, and the the one with both of them together that was like a, about a year ago at this point. Um, okay. So the, so wherever the game was then, it may be in a little bit different shape now. Um, but no, I mean, it, it, you know, they talked about kind of their working relationship and stuff like that, but they didn't really get into any of the details. And, and I didn't really expect them to. That wasn't the, the point of the story. Like, we, we, yeah. hadn't, we hadn't set this up with Square as, like, some coordinated thing to reveal something new about the remake. This was, this was very much our own project that they helped us out a little bit here and there. Um, but it wasn't, like, some big, like, you know, preview reveal something or other. And that's always the fun part of doing an interview, like, doing a project over such a long period of time. Like... There was a there was that bit where you followed up again with Sakaguchi. Um, mm. Like I don't know how mu- how much longer after the reveal of Final Fantasy VII remake, we're like, oh, so you were talking about how you didn't like remakes before. So what are your thoughts now? <laughs> yeah, little uh, little catty of me there, maybe. Um, yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's just interesting to show kind of how people's view on things changes. Like I think mm. part of that is maybe him being uh, political, and I think part of that is probably a genuine. Uh, opinion after seeing how things look um it's hard to say though um yeah i mean i think the the time definitely changes things i think uh, so maybe i don't know how many i don't really thought about it but maybe like a third of the interviews i did before they announced the remake and then we did some that were after and before they announced it like a lot of the, the questions i had in the in the interviews were like about like would you want to see a remake and i had some really interesting quotes on that and it was going to end like the original thought with the story is i was going to end with like what everyone thinks of whether or not they'd want to see a remake. Uh, but then when this, you know, the announcement came along, we had, we had to change that around. So, um, yeah, it was kind of, 
you know, these things change. And, and I think part of it, too, is when you do a story like this where you have different sections, you don't really know what they're all going to be on day one. So, like, if someone you do an interview with early on uh, has some relevance or has something that would, you know, reply well to a quote you get some from somebody else, like, later in the process, then you can either try to go back to them. But sometimes you can't because sometimes you only have certain opportunities. Um, so, yeah, it, it's kind of a balance of trying to get everyone to talk about everything that you have in there. Mm-hmm. I suppose I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the videos. Uh, they were really fantastic. Uh, I assume yeah, that you were bringing, <laughs> I assume you were bringing a film crew with you to like these different interviews and everything, so that you could get everything you needed. Um, were Not you kind actually. of setting it up in advance, <laughs> where you were going, um, where you were going, like, okay, let's let's scout it out. Let, let's make it so that he's going to be talking about One Winged Angel, and then we can do an entire video bit on that. Or did it kind of come out naturally when you were doing just the filmed interviews with them? So, yeah, it was a little different than that, actually. Um, the I basically did all the text story first, and we weren't planning on doing any videos at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but then as the story kind of um, got uh, some traction within the comp- within Vox, um, we got some help on like the design side and some help with, with this, this group they call the Vox's uh, Storytelling Studio. Uh, which does like layout stuff, and they they helped us with this mini game, this trivia game that you were trying. They they helped us put that together. Um, and then since we had a little bit of extra time, uh, then at the end we're like, uh, well, like we could do videos. Um, so then uh, we went back, and I, I wasn't actually there for any of them in person. I, I sent along questions for each of them, but we had different um, people filming each one of those, or well, some of them. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think they were interesting. The, the goal with the videos was to kind of think about what we could show because I really don't like the idea of especially with a translate interview just just having someone talking for like hours at a time on on a video it doesn't feel very like scannable like you can get to the parts you want it feels like you're kind of like forcing people to sit through it just to get the information um so I like showing that kind of stuff in text more um but with the videos I wanted to think of like what could we show so we were like okay if we're gonna do a, a small handful of videos we're gonna go for the people who draw people who like compose music and the guy who can like kind of narrate the tech demo um so that was kind of the goal with each of those was to have like something we could show um i'm glad you liked them it, it, it bugs me just like the consistency just because uh we, we had some urgency in pulling them together so they don't all like look exactly the same but um i i, I do think each of them are uh, kind of interesting in their own way uh, can you, you mentioned that you cut a lot of stuff which obviously um that's going to happen with a, a story of this size can, can you give us any insight into what got cut or is that just going to stay on the cutting room floor <laughs> oh no i mean there's nothing that like i'm, I'm hiding um of course anything that i anything that i thought was good i i put in mm-hmm. um i mean the, the the benefit of having this kind of word count um, is you don't really have to be precious in like cutting stuff for space. Um, there's certain things you cut for like layout purposes or whatever else, but it's nothing like big. Um, yeah, I mean, there, mostly it's just stuff that was kind of either said better by somebody else or um, off topic or, or boring. Like there is more on Lost Odyssey that I thought was interesting uh, that we might be able to do something with some time. Um, mm. But there's not really um, tons of stuff on Final Fantasy that I can I can think of that was you know particularly relevant or good. Um, it's mostly just people saying the same things in different ways. Out of curiosity, did it kind of prompt you to replay Final Fantasy VII just to see how you feel about it after all these years? At times, I didn't I didn't go through the whole thing, but yeah, I played yeah. certain pieces just to kind of like remind myself of what it was like and, and that kind of thing. 
What um, was it like kind of revisiting it? It's uh, really like boring. Oh, it's really slow. I, I mean, I like it. Don't get me wrong. I love the game. But just like being so used to like how things are these days, it's really slow. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they were saying that back in 1997, though, weren't they? I know. But right. But back then it was like it was le- you were less accustomed to having your hand held with everything mm. all the time. Uh, and yeah, it's just a little different, but yeah, no, I, I, I say that, but I, I do like it. It's just, uh, you just got to put yourself in the right mindset. Yeah. Then I'll accept that. <laughs> well, Matt, thanks for so much for coming on the show and talking yes, about, you. uh, your final fantasy seven oral history. You can find that over on Polygon. Uh, you've also been posting like lots of interesting little snippets on Twitter. Like it seems like everybody in social media is talking about it. Um, phenomenal job and honestly like you're doing such a great service like having the kind of resources that you do at your disposal like I I just love that you're putting um, to good use in shedding light on like these really important games um, in a way that goes way beyond anything that we've seen to this point so congratulations All right, that was Matt Leone giving us some insight into how how this huge, ridiculous project came together. Uh, I really enjoyed it. I, I think it's funny that he's not a huge Final Fantasy VII uh, fan. Yeah, himself. it's like uh, for a project like that, you would think it'd be a passion project, but uh, I guess he's just really into the pursuit of information. Yeah, no, that's the that's the Matt Leone that I definitely know. Um, mm-hmm. There, there's so much good stuff in this. Uh, one of the things that you know, it's stuff like just little things like how Square was giving advice uh, to Nintendo that they should be putting a CD drive mm-hmm. into it. And Yamuchi was like, absolutely not. Yep. Uh, that was interesting, but not surprising. And the fact that they gave like a, tech, a tip of the cap to Nintendo's developers. Um, They're like, yeah, no, like Mario 64 and Zelda, like basically they were like, I don't know how they did that. Yeah, they but- basically like... They didn't say it outright, but they kind of insinuated they were miracles. <laughs> yeah, given the pretty hardware. much. They're like, yeah, that's the that's the best that hardware is going to do. Yeah. And of course, they're Nintendo's games. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, oh, and the fact that Uematsu is jealous of Suikoden? Yeah, that was really interesting. Uh, Uematsu, um, if I'm not mistaken, he has pushed himself before in the light of other games. Like, I've heard before that he was inspired to work harder on Final Fantasy IV's soundtrack after hearing ActRaiser's soundtrack, which, of course, is incredible. If you've never heard it, definitely listen to it. I definitely should. I have not heard it myself because I haven't oh, played it's gorgeous. ActRaiser. Throw it on the pile, cat. <laughs> there we go. And they're starting off a cat's pile now. Yes, cat's cat has a pile. Um, I, I found it interesting that he was really self-deprecating about the sound quality of Final Fantasy VII. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But uh, it, it, it's good that he can kind of look back on it on his work, and uh, y- even when he's doing it, and say to himself, "No, I can do better." That's very admirable. I think artists are always going to be like that, you know. Some of them are. Some of them are are jerks. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think like you look back on your own. I, I think a lot of creative types look back on their own work and are a little bit self de- de- self deprecating. Oh God, I can't look back on my own work. I can start crying. Truth be told, I don't think like Final Fantasy VII's soundtrack is iconic but i do actually think that it is middle of the kind of middle of the road in terms of final fantasy soundtracks i don't know i think seven is definitely one of my favorites it has some tunes in there that just kill me like i was telling someone on twitter the other day how i listened to um uh interrupted by fireworks and just 
you know, remembering the context of the of the game that you hear that in, it just kills me every single time. Uh, yes. What really kills me every single time I play the game, and I've played it 60 million times, is um, when you hear Eris's theme when she's kidnapped by the Shinra and you tell her mother that um, Eris is gone and her mother relays the story about how she found Eris at the train station and her after her husband died and she was lonely so she brought her home. That whole scene is just, oh, it still kills me. <laughs> I mean, I did actually listen to a bunch of it when I was playing Final Fantasy fifteen. Yeah, I guess you would have. <laughs> like, I was... I mean, I really like the overworld theme. It's really nice, isn't it? It's very... Um, it goes for to a whole bunch of different places in a, in a short time. Yeah, it's mellow. It's very, very mellow. I, you're right, because I, when I think about it, that's a, that's a theme I, I drive to a lot in the game as well. Yeah, and... I mean, it's not mellow. Melancholy? Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that might be a better word for it. Um, it's like as you're walking across the the overworld. I w- I would actually, I think Final Fantasy VI has my favorite overworld theme, but Final Fantasy VII might be number two. Yeah, it's actually interesting. Final Fantasy VI, um, its overworld theme. My father, who never played a video game in his life except for Duck Hunt um, and maybe Missile Command, he was really into that overworld theme. He thought it was very nice, and he's a musician too. So uh, good on Yamato for that, I suppose. But I think Final Fantasy 4, 5, 6, probably 15, uh, maybe 10, or um, 8, for sure, all have better soundtracks than uh, 7. I still, yeah, I would definitely give the nod to Final Fantasy 6 over 7, if not just because, first of all, I think One Winged Angel is not a very good song. Um, what? Oh, come I, on. I don't, like, I don't like it. And actually, it, um, they kind of cover it in uh, Matt's piece, uh, how it's inspired by the Rite of Spring. And I can yeah. definitely hear that now. But, I don't know, it's just very garish sounding. And the thing with Final Fantasy VI's soundtrack, too, is kind of a miracle because it was all squished onto this little cartridge. And, God, the ending theme is, like, half an hour long. Yeah, no, Dancing Mad was... Dancing I mean, Mad is insane. So ambitious. Mm-hmm. But One Winged Angel, I-, I thought the most interesting bit about it when he was talking about making it was that he was like he had all of these little pieces floating around. Yes. And he just kind of assembled them. Like, it wasn't... Yeah, it wasn't like a a linear process. It was a kind of a patchwork. Yeah, kind he just of kind of stitched it together. And yet, still, um, I, I think it was. I think it really is lodged in the collective memory, not just because it's catchy, but because at the time we hadn't heard anything like it. Yeah, like I will admit, when I, I was blown away when I first heard it as a as a youngster, um, there was not there was really nothing like it. At, on RPGs at the time, of course, because number one, cartridges, number two, uh, well, let's face it, it is the perfect theme for a, a friggin' angel floating down from the sky, ready to kill you. Yeah, and it made Final Fantasy VII seem so much bigger and more epic than anything that had come out to that point, unlike anything. Yes, absolutely. It, it was the perfect song to kind of punctuate everything that had come before it, mm-hmm. like, Maybe now, like, we kind of look back and chuckle at how self-important Final Fantasy VII was, but at the time, it just felt, it was such a dramatic leap over, well, so many other games, like, that it, it felt like the perfect song to close it out. Yeah, and one thing I actually do like, and maybe they, you know, maybe it helps the the ending kind of stay below, right below, you know, too self-important, is the fact that you have that final face-off against Cloud and Sephiroth, and... You have like Sephiroth's theme going on with the bells, like that really heavy tolling. I always mm. like that. Sephiroth yeah. has his shirt off. 
<laughs> no nipples for some reason. Oh, yeah. I always liked Sephiroth with that hair. Mm. I think everyone loves Sephiroth. He's so... I don't want to say emo, but I, I can't think of another word. <laughs> well, he just had a really distinct look. He really did, didn't he? There's nobody yes, like Sephiroth. Um, I have to say that uh, one of the most incredible scenes in a video game to this date, for me anyway, is... Uh, when Cloud is telling you the story of Sephiroth and you um, kind of do that little battle with the big green dragon and mm. the green dragon immediately kills Cloud and like in two seconds, but Sephiroth just one-shots him. So yes. you realize, oh shit, this is the guy I'm chasing. This is the guy I'm going to go up against. And he just one-shotted that huge-ass dragon. So yes, that was really that was really amazing. It's a very cinematic game, so, so good on Square for that. We only touched we touched on it some, but I, I found it really interesting um, here learning a bit more about the breakup between Square and Nintendo because um, mm-hmm. there's so much innuendo going on there. Mm-hmm. But kind of piecing it all together, it, it just seemed like like there was a really telling quote where they were like, "The N64 dev kit wasn't available and the specs kept changing." Yeah, that I, I hadn't known that. That was very interesting. Yeah, and, as didn't... you say, very telling. It's very Nintendo. Mm-hmm. Oh, sorry. I was going to say Nintendo. We talk about now how Nintendo was is kind of arrogant, and they are. But uh, that that's nothing compared to the, the way they were back in the the transition from sixteen bits to thirty two bits. They just assumed everyone would follow them, and they didn't. Well, they had fifteen years of uninterrupted success. Absolutely, uh, like huge, insane success, uh, monopoly type success. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Yamauchi had gotten to where he was by being that guy, mm-hmm. being that uncompromising. Nope, this is how it's going to be. I am right. You're wrong. I'm yep. the genius. You're not. <laughs> this is what I. This is how we do it. This and do headed to work to that point. <laughs> like it, it, yeah. And to be fair, it, it did. I mean, Nintendo wouldn't exist without Yamauchi's business sense. But when it steered him wrong, oh boy, did it ever steer him wrong. Oh boy, did it. But we still, I mean, just at a certain point, Square understandably said, you know what? We're not going to get what we need for Final Fantasy VII uh, out of the N64. And it seems to go way beyond the CD. Like, yeah, I did. that was very interesting. The fundamental guts of the machine. Yeah, um, I have to say, I wasn't expecting that. I always thought it was all about the CDs, but no, it's um, the N64. Just Well, I- I've heard from other developers that it was a monster to develop for, but just the basic specs weren't there either. Well, and you can kind of look back, looking back, you could kind of see it. <laughs> yeah, like some PlayStation games have aged okay. I can't think of any Nintendo 64 games that have aged well. Star in terms Fox of 64. Okay, that, I'll give it that. But, Ocarina um, of Time. Eh, so so. It has. It's not. It's it's aged well. Better than than most N sixty four games. That's for sure. I mean, it's kind of like define what ages well. I I think actually Star Fox sixty four holds up very well as a cinematic uh, space shooter. Well, I think um, also sixty four, Star Fox sixty four, and Mario sixty four too. They they are, they age a little better because they have very colorful graphics. Yeah, uh, for sure. A lot of N sixty four games are muddy. A lot of the third-party games definitely did not, obviously yeah. did not age well. Um, I remember, you know, at the time, like, N64 games looked incredible. Like, Wave mm-hmm. Race looked just... Yeah, that that was good. You're the, right. The, the water effects were just unbelievably good. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but at a certain point, like you looked at a game like Metal Ge- Metal Gear Solid, and you're like, "There's no way this could be done on the N64." Yeah, and let's face it, Final Fantasy VII. Um, even though the the character models have not aged very well, the um, enemy models are mostly okay. And some of the backgrounds, like I've written about this before, but some of the the backgrounds, especially in Midgar, have a lot of personality behind them. Hmm. No, like, for sure. I mean, I mean, a lot of that was there was that comment in the in the oral history where they were talking about the melding of 2D art and 3D yes. graphics. Yes. And that was so important, right? Because mm-hmm. I feel like so many 3D games back then were trying to make literally everything 3D. Yeah. And Final Fantasy 7 managed to stand out. Like everybody kind of complains a little bit about how hard it was to navigate some of those 2D backdrops and everything. Mm-hmm. But it really helped with just making it look really good. It helped with the character of the game. Yeah. Kind of mask the limitations of the 3D, which, face it, were pretty intense. I mean, if you looked at that Final Fantasy VI, this interactive CG game, I mean, you saw, like, how limited it really was um, in terms of, like, the backdrops and everything. And granted, that was just a demo, but it kind of told you where Square was technically, and it was where everybody else was. Yeah, and it's very telling to me that Final Fantasy VII... um, Every background is is unique. You're never going to see two same places at once. And uh, whereas, like Final Fantasy VI, everyone kind of lived in the same house. You know. Hmm. Absolutely. Uh, really. Yeah, it's good stuff. In some ways, like maybe a little bit. We already knew some of it. I mean, it's such well tread trodden territory. And like mm-hmm. uh, Sakaguchi and Uematsu in particular have been email in- emailed interviewed so <laughs> many times <laughs> over the years. Like. They've just honed their their answers to perfection, I suppose. Like they yeah. have their they have their individual narratives, and a lesser to a lesser degree, Katase. But like I was telling Matt, like I getting Nomura in there was uh, really interesting because he is still a bit of a cipher, um, mm-hmm. and he seems to speak his mind a little bit. He does. I actually loved his story about how he knew that they went over to PlayStation when uh, I think it was Sakaguchi had a, a jacket and he's like, hey, check this out. And he turns around and the PlayStation logo was on the jacket. <laughs> yeah. And Nomura was like, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so yeah, once again, go check this out. The story out on polygon.com. Uh, Matt Leone really killed it. And um, mm-hmm. we appreciate it. He's doing a service. Uh, in the meantime, Acts of Blood God is a US Gamer podcast. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, iHeartRadio, wherever our iTunes are sold. Um, follow us on social media. Um, I'm at the underscore catbot. Nadia is at Nadia Oxford. Um, and of course, follow all of the U.S. Gamer social media accounts. That would be Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, you name it. We are there. Um, I'm mm-hmm. in the middle of a Final Fantasy IV Let's Play. You should have at least two more episodes on the YouTubes as we speak. Wow. So you should go check that out. I'm also doing a new weekly column. It's on Monday. It's called Starting Screen. And I am basically doing, um, well, I'm doing a little bit of an editorial and then I'm doing some scattered thoughts. I'm linking over to stuff that I find interesting around uh, around the internet. Um, got little observations in there that don't necessarily make their own article, but nevertheless fit into this kind of format. Um, it's a good place to put in some of the videos that we've been making um <laughs> generally um it's a nice bit of reading um that you can have on your mondays over lunch so it's a good way to start off your week absolutely um by the time this podcast goes up 
Nintendo's Nintendo Switch event should have already happened. We will have a price point and everything and a launch date. Uh, very exciting. Nadia is super pumped to be going to New York uh, yes. for the event they're having over here, even though it's over in Japan. Yeah, that's uh, I have a bus ride ahead of me uh, starting tomorrow. That should be fun. You know, the, just talking about it now, how by the time this podcast goes up, we should know everything about the Switch. There's something ominous about that. Like someone will we listen to this know in the future. Everything about the Switch. Just the, the I have this vision of like the Switch coming alive at the event and killing off humanity, and this will be the last. <laughs> the last remnants of the time before the warning that we didn't heed. It'll be like um, the Animatrix, where they're showing the history of the Matrix, and there's this bit where the robot's giving a speech at the UN and then mm-hmm. blows up. <laughs> so what I'm saying is, this is taking place in New York, <laughs> and oh, the UN's right there. But no, this is taking place in Tokyo. I'm stupid. So, anyway... Yeah, this went off the rails real quick. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so yeah, keep checking US Gamer for all of our Nintendo Switch coverage. We, we've got a lot of it. We're kind of going all in on the Switch. We are. Because we're excited about it. Come on. Yeah, we're I excited. am. I'm You're excited. excited too. Yes, you are. You listening, you are excited. Don't deny it. New console launches always bring joy and warmth to my cold black heart. Mm-hmm. They Same. they make me go, oh, you know, it's that excitement of Christmas when you're like open up a new console for the first time. Yeah. Like when I got a PlayStation 4 for the first time and I got my Wii U, like when it was sitting there on my table, I'm like, mm-mm-mm, new video game <laughs> console right here. I actually went to the uh, launch in New York for the Wii U. Oh, yeah? Yeah, that was a mistake because something happened in the line and I, we waited out in the like the freezing cold for hours and hours. So Ooh. yeah, I'm too I'm too old for that shit. God, I feel like I'm gonna end up standing in line uh, at like a midnight launch event to get try and get at least one more switch for the for the team. Ah, uh, yeah, it's that's dedication. Be, I don't really want to. <laughs> I'm too old for this crap. <laughs> that comes with being the editor, I suppose. But th- these things are gonna be so hard to find. It's not even gonna be funny. Yeah, I'm really I'm really hoping Nintendo doesn't screw us, but. Let's face it, they're going to. Uh, yep, they kind of are. I'm already you hearing think reports that about... Nintendo would have learned their lesson, but <laughs> they're not going to. <sighs> In any case, uh, yeah, thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, we'll be back next week, as always, and we'll probably be talking about Dragon Quest VIII, which Nadia will be playing, and Hooray. also, uh, well, everything we know about the Switch and. We'll have a lot more to cover. Another Persona 4 Golden Report. Of course. All that jazz. Uh, leave us a re- leave us a review on iTunes um, or Stitcher if you want. Um, give us a good review. Uh, I I bow and deeply apologize to the person that uh, I spoiled Final Fantasy 15 for. I'm so sorry that I told you about the time traveling dog. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry about that. That oh, that only makes sense in the context of Final Fantasy, the time traveling dog spoiler. If you, if I'm being honest, I, I wouldn't necessarily characterize that as a spoiler, but I, I tend to have a bad sense for this, such things. Well, I wouldn't I, say I, I wouldn't call the time traveling dog like an integral part of the plot. If anything, it's just a weird like. Yeah, I don't want to. Like, I don't want to downplay note. the yeah, you know yeah. the complaint. Because, no. okay, spoilers are very, you know, nobody wants them. But with a game like Final Fantasy, we, when you hear from the grapevine that 
you know, part of it's open world and the other part is, is very linear, you want to kind of know, okay, can I get back to the open world or am I screwed once I'm locked in? Yes, but so. I was giving plot details. But it wasn't really plot details. It was just a weird bit of lore. Yeah. It was like, oh, yeah, this dog can apparently project you through time or something. It has that's, no bearing whatsoever on the plot. But this dog can do it. That's thing dogs do. I mean, you, <laughs> do, you, literally, you don't go time traveling in the game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's just like, this is the justification that they have for you being able to go back to the open world. At, at any rate, we'll be more careful about spoilers, or we'll try. Yes, we will. I, like I said, I, I can be a little bit careless on that front, and I'm sorry. I apologize, apologize. to our audience, and I will endeavor to be more careful in the future uh, that when I mark a podcast as non-spoiler, that there will not be spoiler. We scrape and bow. Okay, Nadia, thanks for coming on the show as always. We'll see you again next week. Yes. Uh, I'm, uh, I guess uh, if I survive the uh, switch ordeal, I'll, I'll be here. You'll survive. We'll all survive. And until then, I've been Kat Bailey. And for Nadia and myself, thanks for listening. And we'll see you again real soon. Mm-hmm. Happy adventuring. Mm-hmm.